Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're back in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be looking this morning at Mark 14, verses 53 to 65. Mark 14, 53 to 65. And they led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say... I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage now, illumine our minds, give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your word. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to marvel at the fact that the Son of God, the creator of the universe, was willing to be put on trial before wicked men. And he did this for us. Strengthen us now by your word, in Christ's name, amen. Well, we've we've been in the final days of Jesus' life. He's had the last Passover meal with his disciples, where he's predicted his betrayal and death. We've seen his, his agony and turmoil in the garden and his telling uh, the disciples that they will all fall away. We saw that in verse 32 to 42. And then in verse 43 to 52, we actually saw the betrayal of Jesus and his arrest and the abandonment of his disciples. Despite just moments earlier, uh, they were trying to convince Jesus, especially Peter, that they would all be willing to die with him. And here in verse 53 to 65, we have the trial of Jesus before the religious Sanhedrin. All the religious big shots are brought to this meeting. The high priests, Caiaphas, actually this this was actually done in his home. There were the chief priests, the elders, and scribes. They all came together. Mark also tells us that Peter had 
followed him at a distance, even entering into the courtyard of the high priest. Now that, of course, sets the narrative for what happens in verse 66 to 72 with Peter's denial of Jesus. So this is the situation. This is the setting. Jesus has been secretly arrested at night and brought before the religious leaders to be judged according to the law. Now, there's a lot for us to unpack in this story, but the first thing that we need to see in this passage is the wickedness of humanity revealed in the religious leaders, the wickedness of mankind. And we see their wickedness in three different ways. The first is we see their evil intentions, their motives. In verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. They had one aim, and it wasn't to fairly try Jesus. Their aim was to kill him, and therefore they were not seeking the truth, but they were seeking testimony against him. If there was anyone in that room that was for Jesus, they were not allowed to speak. Men who claimed to represent God had the motive and intention to murder an innocent man. And they would do all that they could to make it happen. They were hunting for it, doing everything they could to find something to bring against him. Their motives were evil. But we're told here that they found none. That is, there was no testimony that was reliable in putting him to death. Now, this is no doubt included to demonstrate Jesus' innocence. He had done nothing against the law. He was not just innocent, but righteous. From beginning to end, this is a trial seeking to condemn an innocent, righteous, sinless man. Now, the other wickedness we see is their deception and lies. Not just their motives, but their actions. As verse 56 says, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. So they, were, they not only had evil intentions, but, but there were many who were there who were bearing false witness against Christ. But as often is the case with deception, the stories don't add up. They don't agree with each other. And we are told here that there was one thing that they accused him of, and it's in regards to the temple. As it says in verse 57, And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days later I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. Now they, they are, of course, referring to what Jesus said in John chapter 2, 19-21, where Jesus said this, destroy this temple. Notice, he does not say, I will destroy this temple. He says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you, will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, what Jesus said was different than what they accused him of. He was referring to his own body, but they accused him of speaking about the physical temple, which could have been a serious crime, and they accused him of, of saying that he himself would destroy the temple. He never said that. They're twisting what Jesus said. Now, despite their accusations not being true, 
The irony is that these false witnesses had actually spoken the truth. There is prophetic irony in their false accusations concerning Jesus and the temple. Jesus in his death and resurrection will make the physical temple obsolete. He will, in a sense, destroy it. And he himself will become the new temple built not by human hands, but by the resurrection power of God. He himself will become the meeting place between God and man. You see, these false witnesses are actually prophesying about what Jesus is going to accomplish in his death and resurrection. But we see their deception. They're doing all they can to falsely accuse Jesus in order to condemn him. Now you need to think about this. These were the religious leaders of Israel. These men claimed to be the keepers and guardians of God's law. They claimed to treasure and love the law. But here in this moment, they were breaking one of the most important commands that God gave them. They were willfully willfully breaking the ninth commandment of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. I don't think it's an overstatement to say that deception, falsehood, lies, are one of the most prevalent sins of our culture. And I think it's one of the most overlooked sins. As a society, we're drowning in a world of falsehood and deception. It's become so common that we call it fake news. It's not fake news. It's false, deceptive news. In our society, deception and falsehood are justified for many reasons. If deception can further some so-called moral cause then it's justified. The internet, news media outlets, both conservative and liberal, are swimming in an ocean of lies. It's become so bad that it feels impossible to even know what is true anymore. But here's what we don't often realize, is that we ourselves can can become participants in these lies without realizing it or not having the humility to acknowledge it. I'm going to use a very controversial example to make my case. It may offend some of you, and that's okay. I didn't become a preacher to not offend. But over the last several years, there have been videos of black men killed at the hands of police officers in the United States. I have seen many of these videos And regardless of the situation, they are sad and tragic situations. And we ought to mourn them. But one of the things that has deeply troubled me is seeing so many Christians posting these videos on social media and making judgments as though they know all the facts of the situation. You cannot know all the details by simply watching a one-minute clip of a horrific situation and then declare yourself a witness and make your judgment all over the internet when you don't know all the facts. 
I want justice like every other person when there has been real injustice. But in the same way that people are declaring you can't have peace without justice, it's also just as true, if not even more true, you can't have justice without truth. It's one thing to post one of those videos and be heartbroken and to state, this is horrific, I don't know all the facts, but I hope the truth will prevail and justice will be done and I hope that people will be held accountable if they have done something wrong. Once when all the facts are brought into the situation. But when you post that video and you make your declarative judgment without knowing all the facts, understand this. You're participating in falsehood and deception. You have played the false witness. See, out of all, the peop- out of all people, Christians should be the slowest to make judgments because we care about the truth. The internet has become a breeding ground for deception and lies. And if you're not careful, you can be deceived, but even worse, you can become a participant in deception. I would rather be deceived than deceive. You know, it's interesting that when you read the scriptures, God does not take kindly to falsehood and deception. I noticed this when I was trying to memorize Revelation 21 and 22. The right, uh, John says this in Revelation 21.8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Or Revelation 22, 14 to 15, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murders and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. We have to understand this. People practice deception and falsehood Because they love it. That's what he says. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. A lying tongue, a false witness who breathes out lies. That's who God hates. When you participate in falsehood, you are participating in the work of Satan, for he is the father of lies. Brothers and sisters, do not participate in the falsehoods and the deception and lies of our culture. Be people of truth and therefore be people of restraint. Here in this passage, we see the wickedness of humanity in their evil intentions, but also their deception. But we also see the wickedness of humanity in their arrogance and pride. 
This whole passage of Jesus on trial before the religious leaders is just full of pride and arrogance. They really believe that Jesus must answer to them. They really believe that they have authority over his life. They have put on trial the Son of God as if somehow the Son of God must answer to them. They're standing in judgment over the Son of God. Now this isn't anything new with them. They've been standing in judgment over Jesus and his ministry from the beginning. I mean, accusing him of casting out demons by the power of demons. But here you see the depth of their pride and arrogance. They have the audacity to condemn him to death, and then they begin to spit on him, cover his face, strike him, and mock him. I mean, think about this. In the Gospels, in the presence of the Son of God, the demonic trembles in fear, while wicked humanity mocks, spits, and beats him and condemns him. The demons tremble because they know who they stand before. They're very, they're very aware of the capabilities of their enemy. But not so with wicked humanity. Wicked humanity doesn't understand that before them stands the omnipotent one. You see, it's easy to think that this arrogance and pride was reserved only for the religious leaders. That only they had the audacity to stand in judgment over the Son of God. But that same pride and arrogance resides in the heart of every human. And it isn't just the religious leaders who put God on trial. Even today, people continue to put God on trial and pass their judgments upon him. Let me just give you one example. You may have had a conversation with someone or you may have said this. I can't believe in or follow a God who judges and sends people to hell. Now you have to think about what you're claiming in that statement, what you're assuming in such a statement. This is not just an argument, this is a statement of judgment. The one who says this, the one who says, I can't believe in this God, I can't believe in a God or follow a God who judges and sends people to hell. The one who says that fundamentally, fundamentally believes that he is more merciful than God and understands justice better than God. Do you understand the arrogance and pride that is required within the human heart to believe that you're more merciful than God? Or that you have a better understanding of what justice is? As if with your infinite knowledge you have a better grasp of what sinful humanity is deserving of or not deserving of? Who are we who were formed by God to say to the one who formed us, why did you make me like this? That is, who are we to judge the one who created us and gave us our existence? See, people seem to take issue with a God who judges, but they seem to have no issue with judging God. That's precisely what people are doing when they say things like, I can't believe in a God who judges sinners. What have they done? Well, in that moment, they have judged and condemned God's character as though they're more righteous than he. 
You see, at the heart of human sin is a desire to dethrone God, to remove him as the moral judge over our lives, which is precisely what these religious leaders sought to do. They sought to dethrone Jesus Christ. Here in this passage, we see the wickedness of humanity in their evil intentions, their deception, their arrogance and pride, standing in judgment over the Son of God. And all these sins reside not just in the religious leaders, but in the hearts of every human being. Now, not only do we see the wickedness of mankind, but we also see in this passage the silence of the suffering servant. The silence of the suffering servant. All of the false witnesses had conflicting testimonies. And it's at this moment where the high priest Caiaphas confronts Jesus himself. Verse 60, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. All the false testimonies and accusations and Jesus is given an opportunity to respond, to defend himself, to correct them. But we're told he remained silent and made no answer. Now, we've read this story enough as Christians to miss how peculiar and strange Jesus' actions are. He's been granted an opportunity to defend himself, and instead, he's completely silent. He could have easily shown the folly of their lies and accusations. He could have easily proved his innocence. Earlier in Mark, there were many times when he responded to their accusations. So why doesn't he hear? Why does he remain silent? Well, I think there are at least three reasons. The first, he's demonstrating that he's the suffering servant written about in Isaiah. He's the one who will suffer and die for the sins of all as the silent lamb. He's placing himself within the suffering servant songs of Isaiah. He, in this moment, in his silence, is actually declaring that the servant songs are being fulfilled in him. Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He's silent because he's demonstrating that he's the suffering servant who will die for the sins of all. Secondly, he's silent because he's setting an example for his followers. Now, I'm not suggesting that every time we're falsely accused that we should just remain silent and never defend ourselves. But sometimes... It's wise and prudent to respond in silence to the false accusations of the wicked, to not entertain their lies and deception. Jesus, in his silence, demonstrates both patience and prudence. You see, sometimes when you respond to wicked, deceitful accusations, you're inevitably giving credibility and dignity to those false accusations. Jesus here, as Wynandy states, was not going to bestow by his attempted response 
credibility and dignity to their fabricated, fabricated allegations. Sometimes we ought to remain silent when the wicked accuse us of things that are simply not true. As the Apostle Peter instructs us by holding up the example of Jesus in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Billy Graham had a motto when it came to his false accusers, and the motto was this, no attack, no defense. He would not attack those who attacked him, nor would he defend himself against those who falsely accused him. He rested in God's vindication. Silence, brothers and sisters, is not always weakness or cowardice. Sometimes it's a sign of strength, self-control, patience, things that Jesus personified on a regular basis. Thirdly, The final reason I think Jesus remained silent was to force their hand in order to get to the real issue. He wanted to make sure that when he was condemned, he was condemned only for the truth. Why do I think this? Because when the real issue is addressed, Jesus doesn't hesitate to speak. Caiaphas, in verse 60, calls on Jesus to respond to the false accusations, but he refuses. He will not let them condemn him based upon false narratives. He will not let them hide behind their deception. He forces Caiaphas' hand. And it's here where Caiaphas asks him in verse 61, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That's the real issue. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? That is the Son of God. That's the fundamental issue for the religious leaders. That is the reason they want him dead. It's not the temple or his miracles or his teaching. He didn't die for being an insurrectionist. He died because of what he claimed to be. That's the fundamental issue. The thing they hate. The reason they want Jesus killed is due to his claim about his own identity. Now I want you to notice the question. Caiaphas's question has tied the Messiah, Christ, and the Son of God together. Are you the Christ, Messiah, the Son of God? Now, whether he fully understands the full meaning of that, we don't know. But Caiaphas wants to not only know whether or not Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, Israel's deliverer, but also whether Jesus is the divine Son of God, the one who shares the very nature of and essence of God. That's the issue. And Jesus makes sure that that will be the reason for his condemnation. These are the reasons Jesus remains silent. He is fulfilling the suffering servant songs. He is setting an example for his followers. And he will make sure that he is condemned for the truth about himself. Now the last thing that I want us to see in this passage is the claim of the suffering servant the claim the high priests the high priests asked Jesus directly in verse 61 are you the Christ the son of the blessed and Jesus without hesitation makes a very bold claim 62 verse 62 and Jesus said i am i am and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven 
with those two simple words, I am. Jesus, as the Christ, the Messiah, claims to be the divine Son of God. Do you remember when Moses asked God what his name was? And God responded with, I am that I am. That is, I am simply that I am. I am being itself. Or all of Jesus's I am statements in the Gospel of John. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the light of the world. You see, Jesus isn't saying that he's the divine son of God in some adopted sense, but as ontologically being God as the Father is God. That is, he shares the same essence as God the Father. The one whom they have put on trial is none other than the one who spoke the universe into existence. Now, not only does he claim to be the divine son of God, but he also claims that he will sit at the right hand of God, the place of power and authority, and will come with the clouds of heaven. Now, this, of course, is is a reference to the prophecy in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, which says, I saw, this is Daniel having this vision, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that is God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now this, of course, is referring to the establishment of Christ's kingdom at the end of time. It's a declaration of his eternal reign. And the reason he can claim such a reign, such a power and authority, is because of who he is. He is the Christ, the eternal Son of God. Now what was Caiaphas' response? Well, he accused Christ of blasphemy. He understood what Jesus was claiming. He understood that Jesus was claiming to be divine. In verse 63, And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. You see, Jesus would not let them condemn him on the grounds of false testimony. He made sure they condemned him on the grounds of his own true testimony. He will not die because of the lies leveled at him. He will die for the sake of the truth he spoke concerning himself. You know what Jesus is also doing here? He was warning these men, but they didn't have ears to hear. He is on trial before this mob of religious leaders, but he warns them that one day he will return as the king of kings and they will be tried. That alone should have caused them to tremble. But instead, in their sinfulness, they became all the more hostile. You know what I think this passage demands us to ask and to consider? is simply this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he who he claimed to be? Or is he a fraud like Caiaphas claimed him to be? There are no other options. 
The most important question that you must ask is, who is Jesus? And the second most important question is, how will you respond to him? Will you mock him, despise him, or will you bow down and worship him as the Christ, the divine Son of God? When he returns in glory, will he find you standing in judgment over him, or will he find you on your knees crying out, my Lord and my God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for our Savior who was willing to suffer such evil at the hands of wicked men in order that he might redeem us from sin. And we thank you, Lord, that that we know, Lord, that we are really no different than those religious leaders apart from your grace. That we too once stood in judgment over you that we too once thought that we were wiser and better than you, but it was only because of your mercy and grace and because of Christ that we realized that we were lost and in desperate need of a Savior. And Lord, we also thank you that we do have a Savior who no longer remains dead, but is seated at your right hand and has promised to come with the, with the clouds to establish his kingdom and his reign upon earth. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in light of that great hope and confidence. And even so, Lord, we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Christ's name, amen.